Please turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. That will be our sermon text for this morning, the whole chapter there, Genesis 15. Before we read that together, let's pray together. Our great God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, we pray that you would be with us now, that you would give us your spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Christ. We pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts, that we would know the hope to which you have called us and the riches of the glories of your inheritance that is saved up in heaven for us. We pray that we would know the power, the measurable greatness of your power toward us who believe, the saving power that was at work in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him at your right hand. We pray that that same power would be at work in us by your Spirit, even this morning, even as we read and hear your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 15, beginning with verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and, the number, and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O oh Lord God, how am, I know, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each of them, each half, over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions." As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. 
On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Do you have questions? I have had people tell me that they have been in churches where they weren't allowed to ask questions. Of course, there are others who ask questions all the time but don't expect answers, or they demand a certain kind of answer, neither of which is open to the answers that God might give. Now, when you don't feel like uh, you can ask questions or you ask questions without being interested in the answers, neither person is going to grow. If you refuse to ask any questions at all, if you think faith is just born fully formed, you won't grow. Your faith will be static. You'll say, I believe what I believe, and that's that. If you ask questions, but you aren't open to God's answers, you won't grow. Uh, you'll, you'll simply float in a sea of unanswered questions. Maybe, maybe you'll even pride yourself on not settling for easy answers. But as a result, you are perpetually unsure of the answers to life's biggest questions. You believe there are no good answers out there, which of course is no less an article of faith than anything else. But faith is never born fully formed. Faith can be weak or strong. It can be healthy or unhealthy. It can be saving or not saving. Uh, Faith can be misdirected or malformed. It can be in the wrong thing. It can be incomplete. Theologians talk about a a, a historical faith, that is, faith that the events of the Bible happened. They talk about a miraculous faith, faith that miracles can happen. And then they talk about saving faith, which is more than both of those. Faith is typically defined as involving three things, knowledge, assent, and trust. Knowing, merely knowing, is not faith. Even assenting to certain propositions is not faith. The question is, are you trusting in Christ's death for your sin? That's faith. Again, wherever your faith is, faith is never born fully formed, right? So uh, you know, baby boys don't come out of the womb needing to shave. Faith doesn't come out of the womb fully formed, right? We, we can all grow in our faith. And, and that your faith has room to grow is no more a problem than a child who needs to come to maturity. That's not a problem. It's a It's a process a God-given process. There, there is, in other words, there's a growth chart for faith. And where you are on that chart is not as important as the direction you are headed. So how then does faith grow? Uh, and here's what we will see in Genesis 15 this morning. God feeds faith by stirring the imagination, clarifying his promise, and swearing by his life. Therefore, rest in God's promise in Jesus. So first, God feeds faith by stirring the imagination. Uh, Abram had been through a lot. Uh, We've seen much of it over the past several weeks. He left the comforts of home, family, and culture to go to the promised land. He faced famine in the land, and rather than trusting in God, he retreated to Egypt. But God was faithful and not only brought him back, but provided for him in the process. He then faced another problem. Prosperity brought conflict. Abram faced that better, 
trusting God to provide rather than grasping after things seen. But then there was yet another problem. War broke out in the promised land, and Abram's nephew Lot was caught in the middle. Abram had to rescue Lot from four powerful kings. Life had been a kind of a roller coaster since leaving Ur. And you may wonder if some days Abram regretted the move. But now the battle is over and Abram has a moment to breathe. And it's into that quiet that God speaks in Genesis 15, verse 1. We're told, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Fear not. Uh, Perhaps Abram was concerned about retribution from the pagan kings. But as God delivered them into Abram's hands in chapter 14, so God would continue to be Abram's shield. Uh, The verb translated delivered and the noun translated shield are from the same root word. The point is God is affirming his continued protection of Abram. And then God promises Abram a reward. The word for reward is used of the, the spoils of war. Abram had just fought a battle and he had given up the literal spoils for righteousness' sake. And God was assuring Abram that he has lost nothing. Uh, But this brings up a question in Abram's mind. And I want to point out, really, there are two questions in this chapter. In verse 1, God promises Abram great reward, and Abram asks in verse 2, what will you give me, for I continue childless? And in verse 7, God reiterates his promise of the land, and Abram asks in verse 8, how am I to know? that I shall possess it. And notice a couple of things. First, God, uh, God doesn't immediately rebuke or even eventually rebuke Abram for his questions. He doesn't rebuke Abram for his questions. He answers them. Now, we have a God who is not afraid of your questions. He may not always give you the answer you are hoping for. He may not tell you all that you want to know. Uh, but there are answers to your questions, whether we like those answers or not. And we should feel free to bring our questions to God, as Abram does here. Second, notice that Abram's questions flow out of his faith. You know, questions are not necessarily a sign of unbelief. Uh, Just because you have questions or even doubts doesn't mean that you don't have saving faith. Uh, Verse 6, and we'll come back to this verse, says, Abram believed the Lord. And in verse 8, Abram is asking another question. Real questions actually flow out of faith. Why is that so? Because if I, if I don't believe in God at all, I'm not going to ask him questions. And if I don't believe God, I won't be open to his answers. Honest faith looks to God, asks questions, and then waits for God to answer in his timing and his way. And so Abram asks his question in verses 2 and 3. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Uh, Now you have to realize that that everything depended upon children in that day. Uh, No children meant no help in the fields, no one to care for you in your old age, no one to bury you when you die, no one to carry on your name. Your family, including your children, were your police force and your 401k. So children were pretty important. And Abram says, how can my reward be great if I don't even have this most basic necessity of life? On the one hand, this is a a real question for Abram. 
On the other hand, again, it's not a question out of unbelief, but out of faith. He's saying, okay, God, I, I hear you saying you will provide for me, but how can that be when, when I don't even have one child? What is this going to look like? Help me understand. And so God reassures him in verse 4. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. God makes explicit what has been at least implicit so far, that Abram will himself have a son, period. But God doesn't just affirm this promise. He takes it a step further in verse 5. He brings Abram outside and says, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Now what does this do? It doesn't prove anything. Uh, there's no logical argument to get from stars to babies. I mean, anybody can go outside and look up at the stars. That doesn't guarantee a large family. Why make this move? Why, why point Abram to the stars? God is trying to stir Abram's imagination. Look at the stars. Count them. Go ahead and try, Abram. Go ahead and just try to count the stars. What would that do? It would give Abram a sense of his smallness, of his finiteness when he lost count again and again. Uh, it would give Abram a sense of the bigness of God's promises, bigger than he can count, bigger than reason can comprehend. It would also remind Abram of God's power. Who made the stars, after all? God did. What else did God make? All things. Cannot he who made the stars and called them all by name also fulfill this promise to Abram? And the result is Abram believed. Now, faith is in part the ability to imagine what God has promised, to look to the unseen, to picture the invisible with your mind's eye. And this is why our imaginations are so important. And stirring our imaginations, training them, stretching them, growing them is actually a part of growing in faith. Can you imagine what God is going to do? Can you imagine the last day? Can you imagine your tomorrow with God at work in your life? Look at the stars. Well, Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And Paul is quick to pick up on this in, in Romans chapter 4. David read the whole chapter earlier. I'm just going to read a, a few verses from the beginning. Romans 4 verse 1. Paul says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was, Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Abram believed the God who justifies the ungodly. He was declared righteous through faith. Not that the faith itself was declared an act of righteousness. That just turns faith into a work. No, we are justified through faith, ultimately on account of the righteousness of Christ. And of course, it is just this characteristic, Abram's faith, his believing that makes his offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven. Abram will have a son, Isaac, we'll see that as we go on, and yet he will have an even greater son, Jesus. 
Paul says if we believe in Jesus, then we belong to Jesus. And if we belong to Jesus, we are Abram's offspring, heirs according to promise. He spells that out in Galatians 3.29. Abram believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And all who believe as Abram believed are considered children of Abraham and are declared righteous by faith as Abram was declared righteous by faith. And so faith is pretty important. Believing in the righteousness of Jesus, believing in the God who justifies the ungodly is important. So then the question is, okay, well, how does our faith grow? And the first is God feeds our faith by stirring the imagination, and second, by clarifying his promise. When I lived uh, in the dorm at Westminster Seminary, the, the Lime Kiln dorm was a few miles away from the school. And I would drive guys back and forth to class. And we had quite a few international students in the dorm at the time. And one time I asked a guy if he needed a, a ride, if he needed a ride to class. And he said, that's okay. Now, when someone asks if you need something and you respond, that's okay, what does that mean? I thought it meant no thank you. You know, that's okay. But English wasn't this guy's first language, and he meant, yes, that would be great. But I left him, and he was not happy. Right? Has it ever happened to you that someone said something, but, but you thought they meant something else? Uh, and then you went to collect, so to speak, and they didn't follow through, at least not the way you expected. And perhaps the next time you made plans with that person, you repeated them once or twice, just to make sure that you really understood the details. Clarifying the details can go a long way to assuring your heart. And no sooner did Abram believe the Lord than God reiterated his promise in verse 7. Verse 7, God said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But of course, Abram has another question. How can I know? How can I know that this is really going to happen? What, what assurance do I have Again, note that, that God doesn't rebuke Abram. He answers him. And he, he, he answers him really in two ways. At first, uh, let's look at what God says. And in our next point, we'll look at what God does. So look at uh, verses 13 to 15 and 18 to 21 again. So uh, 13 to 15, God says this. The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And then uh, verse 18 through 21 again. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. God clarifies his promise to Abram. Abram's offspring, he says he's going to give him the land, and then he gets more specific. Abram's offspring will be sojourners 400 years. Uh, now, whether that includes their time in Canaan while they are sojourners in Canaan or just begins in Egypt is a point of debate, which we don't need to get into at the moment, but the result is the same. Abram will not settle in the land. He will be a pilgrim his whole life. His children will eventually inherit the land, though not without great suffering first. 
Now, if you notice, God essentially previews the entire story of the Exodus for Abram here. And he promises that his offspring will receive the land. Really, he goes from the rest of Genesis as they enter into Egypt through the book of Exodus on into the book of Joshua when they enter into the land. So God kind of gives them a preview of redemptive history at this point. But think about how this is helpful. If Abram thought, God is going to give me this land any day now, every day he would wake up full of hope and then go to bed full of disappointment. And that disappointment after disappointment might eventually turn into cynicism. See, when when we believe that God has promised us something that he has not promised, things never go well. If you believe that God has promised a carefree Christian life, you will soon be disappointed. And you will likely blame God for not following through. If you believe that the Christian life should be one, one continuous victory over sin, you will soon be disappointed. And you may become disillusioned with God, or you may blame yourself and live in perpetual guilt. If you believe that God has promised to make you happy, to give you a satisfying job, and to bring your kids to faith, or any number of other things that God has not actually promised, disappointment is soon to follow, with either guilt or cynicism on its heels. This is why name-it-and-claim-it Christianity doesn't work. It assumes that God has promised things he has not promised, or at least assumes a timeline that God has not guaranteed. So how do you feed faith? Well, you clarify the promises of God. There are lots of promises in the Bible, of course, and and it's not always easy to know which ones apply to you. A good rule of thumb is actually to begin by saying pretty much every promise in the Bible is to someone in particular. Uh, It's to Abraham or to Moses or to Israel or to David or to the apostles, to the Corinthian church and so on. And yet Paul says that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. And so to understand the promises, first seek to understand how those promises are fulfilled in Jesus. And once I figure out how it was or is or will be fulfilled in Jesus, then I can figure out how it might apply to me as someone who is in Jesus, especially as someone who is where Jesus was in a time of suffering and difficulty that I might in the future be where he is, the state of glory. So the question is, how is my situation in Jesus analogous to the situation of the original recipients of this promise and analogous to Jesus in its fulfillment? Now, there's obviously a lot more that we could say about that, and maybe even what I said is a bit confusing. That's okay. Uh, Ask me about it later. I'd be happy to talk about it. Uh, But the point is this. If you want to believe the promises of God, we've got to know the promises of God. And if we're going to know the promises of God, we've got to study the promises of God, which means we've got to study the scriptures, especially as it climaxes in Jesus, right? Studying the promises of God in scripture, coupled with an active imagination where we can picture what God has promised and what he's going to do, that will feed our faith and will help us walk by faith and not by sight. And so God feeds faith by stirring the imagination, by clarifying his promise, and third, by swearing on his own life. You know, the real centerpiece of this chapter is this covenant-making ceremony. God has Abram bring a series of sacrificial animals and cut them in half and lay them side by side. And and, and this ceremony was actually common in the ancient Near East, uh, 
we see it elsewhere, not only in other ancient Near Eastern documents, but even in Scripture itself. In Jeremiah chapter 34, verses 18 through 19, we read this. And the men who transgressed my covenant, God is saying, and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calves. See, the dead animals symbolize the judgment that would come upon the one who breaks the covenant. This is what theologians call a self-maledictory oath. It's like the children's oath. You may remember as a kid, cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. You know, you, you say that. And what you're saying is, if I go back on this promise, may all these bad things happen to me. Well, Abram cuts these animals in half. He lays them in two rows. And then birds of prey come, or or better, carrion eaters, right? So birds that eat dead things, vultures, buzzards, and crows, that kind of bird. They they come, and it's a bit of an odd detail, but uh, these kinds of birds are actually often associated with judgment in Scripture. And so in Ezekiel chapter 39 and in Revelation 19, the birds are actually called to come and eat the flesh of the enemies of God, those whom God himself would defeat in battle. And the point is, rather than having a proper burial, their bodies were exposed to the birds and the beasts. And so even in death, they are shamed for their rebellion against God. Okay, so um, why do these judgment birds show up here? Well, I'm not 100% sure. Uh, It's a good question. But perhaps, perhaps they emphasize the judgment that this ceremony pictures. Those who break God's covenant would face judgment and the worst kind of judgment, right? Their bodies would be exposed to the birds of the air to feed upon. Well, Abram chases them away has this ceremony still to go through with, Uh, but then he falls into a deep sleep, a supernatural sleep in which dreadful and great darkness falls upon him, verse 12 tells us. The weight of this moment and, and the presence of God is what seems to be implied by this great and dreadful darkness. And then God gives his promise, which we just talked about, a promise actually of salvation through trial and judgment. Israel would be enslaved, but God would judge their oppressors and bring them out. And finally, after the sun had gone down in verse 17, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. Now, why smoke and fire? Well, most likely because smoke and fire represent the presence of God. We see this, for example, in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 3, verse 2. Uh, The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Right? God appears uh, in the fire. Exodus 13, 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. Exodus 19, verse 18. Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke. Because the Lord had descended on it in fire, the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And so here, right, God himself, under these images, under this picture of of smoke and fire, passes through the pieces. 
But notice, uh, th- this is the, the key moment of the ceremony. When, when those who make covenant pass through the pieces and declare their intent and make their vow, the moment when they say, if I break this covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to me. But Abram does not pass through. In fact, Abram is asleep. Rather, God passes through. God takes the oath. If these promises are not fulfilled, may I be judged like these animals. Now, some commentators actually don't believe that God would take such an oath. Uh, They look for some kind of an alternative explanation of the ritual, and some of their explanations are okay, I guess, but the Jeremiah passage seems to be clear that passing through the halves is a way of promising on your own life to your own harm. What does it mean for God to promise to his own harm. I mean, on the one hand, we might say, well, God can't be hurt. He, he can't die like those animals, so it doesn't really mean anything. But, you know, if you, if you read through the Old Testament, God often swears by his own life. A number of times in Scripture, God swears, as I live, declares the Lord. And the sense is really the same. If, if God lives forever... And yet, he does, uh, and yet he has taken an oath that if he doesn't fulfill his promise, may he die, then clearly God must fulfill his promise because he cannot die. Now, of course, there's more to it than that. God's covenant is threatened again and again throughout the Old Testament. Not because God is unfaithful, but because God's people are. They, they fail to live up to even the most basic call of, a co- of the covenant. They, they fail to believe They fail to walk by faith. They worship false gods. They turn away from the true God. The covenant is in jeopardy, not because God is unfaithful, but because his people are. And so God moves to secure his covenant. How does he do that? By taking the judgment that they deserve upon himself. God fulfills his promise. If anything gets in the way, may I die a death of judgment like these beasts. And so Jesus comes taking the form of a servant, taking on humanity, taking on a body, flesh and blood, that he might be cut in two and fed to the birds, as it were. Not quite literally, right? but he does face judgment. He goes to the cross and he suffers the worst kind of shame and death and judgment. Not just death on a cross, but the wrath of the Father. And this... This is what guarantees God's promise. His promise to Abraham and his promises to us. When God makes promises, outlandish promises, right? Promises of of no more tears, of no more sin, of, of no more death, of resurrection life on the last day. How can we know that he will keep his promise? Because he has already paid for it with his own blood. God promises to his own hurt, And he took that hurt upon himself in order to fulfill the promises to us. If you are ever wrestling over whether God will fulfill his promises or or whether God will fulfill them to you, just look to the cross. There Jesus purchased salvation with his own blood. Believe in him. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Paul will say in Acts. And so finally, God feeds faith by stirring the imagination, by clarifying his promise, and by swearing by his own life to his own hurt. Therefore, rest in God's promises 
in Jesus. God promises to forgive your sins in Jesus, to break the power of reigning sin, to fill you with his spirit, to conform you to his image, to make you like his son, to be with you always to the end of the age, to raise you from the dead on the last day. God promises that his power will be made perfect in your weakness and that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. If you believe in Jesus, all of these promises and more are yours. And there will be pleasures forevermore at God's right hand for you. Do you believe him? If you are ever unsure, right, let the scripture stir your imagination clarify his promises and point you to Jesus who swore by his own life and to his own harm that his promises would be fulfilled. Therefore, rest in God's promise in Jesus by faith. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would grant us this faith, that we would trust in Jesus, that we would believe in him, fix our eyes on Jesus and help us to rest in his completed work in the cross and in the resurrection. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.